Morning, Sean. It's uh, been a hot second, as they say, or hot minute. <laughs> it's been a hot minute since we last talked. I mean, they say something, but I wasn't sure what it was. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a hot minute, which anyway, I think we've talked about that before somewhere, how that makes no <laughs> yeah. sense. Yeah, I think the last time we talked is before we started trying to save time here in the United States. How's that How's that working out for you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my dad, he he enjoys the crusty old codger persona, and he almost always, whenever there's some sort of daylight savings time, switch between that and standard time. He'll say something about the old Chinese proverb, or the, the old Indian proverb, that... Now, the only a white man would think that cutting a, a foot off the top of a blanket and sewing it on the bottom of a blanket will make the blanket longer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which I understand mathematically. It doesn't save us any time and it doesn't give us any time. But moving the daylight to a different portion of the time when you get up at a certain hour and go to work at a certain hour, it does it does work. Um, yeah. Do you have any specific thoughts on daylight savings time? well we've been in peru now for not quite four years and peru does not observe any sort of uh, daylight savings time and i love that Mm -hmm. (laughs) i despise changing time like i did when i lived in the states and it's just so nice to keep the same time all year round i actually enjoy moving with the seasons my schedule so yeah when it's winter time the days are shorter here and it's colder what's it's nice to stay in bed a little bit longer and Mm -hmm. and enjoy enjoy that cozy aspect of winter Mm -hmm. rather than having to worry about needing to get up when it's totally dark yeah so i don't really mind it because well i mean for one anybody that knows me pretty well knows that I embrace change for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't bother me. I I actually enjoy trying to adjust to changes. It doesn't really bother me that much, but I can understand why people don't like it. It certainly is hard in the spring when you feel like you've lost an hour in the morning, but mm-hmm. it does take a little bit to get used to it, but it doesn't bother me too much. So, yeah, I guess it's, uh, yeah, it, now, the reason I thought about it is because we had to adjust our recording schedule. Lately, we've been recording at 5.30 mm-hmm. in the morning, and now we're recording at 6 because uh, it's currently 5 o'clock your time. <laughs> so you're recording yeah. earlier than normal, <laughs> and I'm recording later than normal. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just, the, just what you have to do when, when you live in different time zones or when you live different uh, sides of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, a number of months ago, you said it was sometime in January, we had an episode where we asked each other some questions, and we thought to do that again, partially because the last couple episodes have been a bit heavier topic-wise, and mm-hmm. it, it's, it's more enjoyable in some ways. No, I, that's not quite right. I do enjoy recording the more serious episodes as well. It kind of tickles my brain and makes me kind of dig deep and think, but... I do enjoy a lighter episode as well, although I'm looking at (laughs) some of the questions that we're asking each other and they're not light questions like what is the, like what do you feel when you step into water wearing socks? (laughs) Yeah. It's it's like what is the most difficult 
thing that you've ever done? What has tortured your soul like nothing else mm -hmm. uh, is basically? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess we can. We're impossible. Yeah. So we will try to, to keep it shorter. But um, we do have some more episodes coming up that are taking a good bit of prep time. And we've kept pushing them off and pushing them off. But they are coming eventually. So you just have to have to wait. And we might even be able to do a few in-person episodes here, which actually by the time this episode comes out, there's a good chance that I might already be in Peru. <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit hard to believe, but that's, yeah, we're definitely looking looking forward to that for sure. Yeah. I'm not sure where you're going to be in, in my small office, but we'll, <laughs> we'll make it work. We'll figure something out. Okay. So I think we'll kind of go through some of these questions here and I'll ask Sean a question and then he'll ask me one and we'll just kind of go back and forth spending a bit of time talking about each one of those. Okay, fire away. Okay, my first question is what inspired you to become a missionary in Peru? And this is kind of a second part of that question is how did you know God was calling you to move to Peru? Well, <laughs> there's so much to unpack in this question. <laughs> <laughs> unpack. Whenever you say unpack, it sounds like it's a serious discussion. You need to be careful. <laughs> this is the problem. You're like, let's have some quick questions and answers. Also, <laughs> what is the most existential question of your life? <laughs> no, I, I wrote some notes down to help me move move through this question a little bit. But I, I would say generically, generally, what inspired me to become a missionary was uh, something that I've had with me ever since I was very young, ever since I first came to know the Lord. And it's just as simple as because Jesus saved me, mm -hmm. but it's not a um, it's not just a, a phrase that we say. But in my younger years and through my youth, I had some very uh, dark times, some very lonely moments, and 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 Jesus saved me from that and changed me and gave me hope that. I felt was tangible, was real, and and carried me through, and was my some often my only friend, and was a a true friend for me through those years, and I just felt through that time that he had done so much for me, and I, I was able to <laughs> very much get this picture of of the passion of Christ of his of his suffering and and Jesus was a loner too. I remember one of the passages that really hit me as a young person was this the the story of of Herod killing all all the little boys when Jesus was a baby and Jesus had to then grow up in that community as the only person his age and for a boy that can be a tough thing to do to be the only one your age to be kind of the weird one and so on. And so that always connected with me, that Jesus knew what it was like to be alone. I knew what it felt like to be alone and knew how it felt to be, I don't know, I just always felt like he did so much for me. I knew how ugly and unworthy I was, and so I owed him that because of my love for him, mm -hmm. just kind of a an answer of love, I suppose. And then that whole, I guess that whole theme of 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 loneliness or hopelessness is what drove me to want to take it to other people. There's a story of when Jesus 
before his passion came to Jerusalem and he wept over Jerusalem and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd and it said it moved him to compassion. Mm-hmm. And that always connected with my heart. I wanted other people to to be able to know the shepherd that I have and just to be able to be safe in his arms and and there's so many people in the world and, and that are without hope with their alone that are yeah just lost and I wanted to be able to take the hope that I have to those sorts of people then specifically about Peru is but we actually my wife and I when we decided to start looking for a place to go we were looking at some options in Guatemala. We had wanted to go to a Latino country, but there were some openings in, in, in Guatemala that we were considering. But then we heard about Peru, and what grabbed me especially was that there had been a missionary family here for a few years. Then they had to leave for whatever reasons, and there were uh, a few people that were interested in the gospel that were abandoned essentially. And just that, that again, that sense of being alone, being abandoned, being without hope was what caught me. And I, I wanted to be able to help those people. I wanted to bring the, the hope of Jesus back to them and give them a chance. And, and at that time it seemed like no one else would do it. And so so we felt like we should be the one since no one else would. And yeah, like I said, we've been here coming up on four years <laughs> and sometimes it's still, sometimes it still feels like no one else will do it. <laughs> and so we're still here. Yeah. Did you, so the second part of that question, I guess, um, I don't know if you answered that or not, or you felt like you answered it about like, how did you know God was calling you to move to Peru? That's, that's kind of a big mm-hmm. question too, but if you got a couple comments about that yeah well, like i said it was mostly just that sense of here's a great need and there's no one filling it mm-hmm. that that's a little bit something that that is part of my personality like i i'm not even sure what the term is but you, you know if i if i see spilled water on the floor and there's a whole group in the room I'll probably be one of the first ones to to run and grab a towel and clean mm-hmm. it up because like there's just a need there that sort of thing, and so I, I think it was that was the big part of it was here's a need and no one else is going to do it and so I felt like I felt like it needed to be us and we were available we had promised the Lord that we would be used where where He wanted us or where He needed us and God's will is not. Uh, so very specific a lot of times about that we have a destiny that we end up one particular place. I don't think he allows that to be our decision. Mm-hmm. So it was up to us if we wanted to go to Guatemala or to Peru, but it was just that sense of <laughs> there's a song, an, an old song uh, about um, a gypsy boy. Have you have you heard that song? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> Christian Light sells an orange songbook called Zion's Praises that has a song in it about a missionary went into a tent where a gypsy boy lay dying, and and he the gypsy boy was he said was essentially crying out to the missionary to say please go to my people because I can't and there's no one else to do it, and so the song ends with 
kind of this this plea of go to the go to the places that are not popular go to the places that are not easy is kind of the idea that i took from it mm-hmm. because you know it might be easy to go if you go on youtube for example and and start looking up missionary youtube videos it's often dig a well in costa rica or open an orphanage in an african country and so like there's a lot of attention on for some reason costa rica and and uh, kenya and and there's no pro- i have no problem with that whatsoever but maybe people in the andes mountains of peru can easily be overlooked because it's not very glamorous mm-hmm. <laughs> and but there's still a need here and so yeah okay yeah you were talking about how you have this compulsion to to rush and help and i think sometimes i do too maybe in a different way but I, I had to think about a line from Alexander Pope's an essay on criticism that is sometimes pulled out and used for fools rush in where angels fear to tread. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know if that describes you at all or not, but anyway. Uh, yeah. I have maybe had something similar said about me more okay. than once in okay. my life. <laughs> all right. A question for you, James. Uh, people know you as a a sciencey nerdy person how do you keep yourself updated or informed about the latest scientific developments or news that goes on in the world or maybe a, a side question to that is how do you sift sift it out because there's so much of it a lot of it is i don't pay much attention to it actually <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah I used to spend a good bit of time so it's been kind of a larger shift in my life And I think some of it is maybe intentional, some is unintentional, but I used to spend a good bit of time reading, like I would pull up the news app on my phone and read news, or I had certain websites that I would go to pretty much every day and see what the latest news was. And lately, I just don't. I do have a few newsletters, email newsletters, so I have a couple that are related to space flight, Mm -hmm. and those come in every week. And I have some podcasts I listen to. Uh, Some are science-related, although I don't listen to a lot of science-related podcasts. So some of it is just whatever kind of breaks through the barrier between me and the internet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or And and, and YouTube is probably one way as well. There's a couple YouTube channels related to science that will pop up in my recommended or that I'm actually subscribed to that... I watch. So that's probably what it is. A lot of times, if it's big enough, it'll it'll make its way through the barrier to me. But I don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not like every day I'm I'm pulling up these five websites and scrolling through to see what the latest scientific discoveries are. Mm-hmm. So I, maybe that's a surprising <laughs> information. But I very much enjoy it. But in a sense, I'm in a different time in my life right now where. I have other responsibilities, uh, spend time with my family, and I just my time to read online articles has shrunk to the point that I just don't really do it anymore. Yeah. Speak, you said that might be surprising. That was one of my other questions that maybe you can jump right into was people think about you as this, you know, sciencey nerdy sort of person because you're you can tend to be quick about, you know, sharing what you know. <laughs> oh no. So <laughs> 
that doesn't sound good. <laughs> so what is something about you that might surprise someone who thinks they mm-hmm. they know you fairly well in that way that is non-stereotypical of a, a science or nerdy sort of person? Yeah, well, I think I somewhat unintentionally already opened that a little bit. So I was quoting a line from Alexander's Pope, an essay on criticism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> I taught, so many people are, are surprised to find out that out of the years that I taught school, I taught literature more years than I taught science. Yeah. <laughs> uh, probably in some ways, my first love is just learning and reading. Mm. And science is part of that. And I think some of it has been what, so I started going to college in the mid 2000s. I was about 20 years old and I ended up taking, most of my classes were history related, not science related. I only took, I took a chemistry class and a physics class, mm-hmm. but I had maybe four science classes and a couple literature classes. Now, some of those were ones that I had to take, but I had some electives that I could choose whatever I wanted to, and I just basically took as many history classes as I could because my professor was really, really good. And um, I just wanted to get as many classes under him as possible. Mr. Caldwell, I think I maybe have mentioned him Mm -hmm. before. So Mm -hmm. I'm interested in way more than just science. That's just, I think it sometimes comes out because it's something that not a lot of people are as interested in as I am. There's decent you know, there's a decent number of other people that enjoy history and and reading and literature, but there's not many people that enjoy science. Mm-hmm. And so that's anyway. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think what else. Uh, I used to write poetry. I haven't written any in a while, but I did write some poetry in my high school years and early uh, in late teens. I wrote a decent amount of poetry. Okay. I would say most of it was probably not very good, and it was not a systematic thing. It was more like I'm sitting in my uh, high school classroom, and somebody forgot to turn on the furnace in the morning, and it's freezing cold, and so I write a poem about cold <laughs> mm-hmm. type of thing. Um, I did not know this about you. You've never you've never shared your your book of poetry with me. <laughs> oh, it's not a book of poetry. <laughs> no, I, I um I did submit it to some online poetry something or other and it got put into a book, but I almost wonder oh, wow. Well, <laughs> I almost wonder if it's one of those websites or book sites that you put your your poem in and they basically are doing it just like they're printing out like one copy of the book with your poem so that way that way you spend $40 to buy the book or Oh, yeah. I think there are things like that. I think it might have been more along those lines. But I do have a book with my poem in it, uh, for whatever that's worth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you said maybe your poetry wasn't that great. Well, I think most poetry isn't that great, so (laughs) you're you're in good company. (laughs) Well, it depends on the poetry. (laughs) Yeah. I I love poetry, uh, by the way, so not just slamming poetry out of hand. Yeah. So are you, do you like, uh, do you like Emily Dickinson? Yeah, yeah, okay. I do. Yeah, she's she's kind of strange. I have I have an entire <laughs> book of nothing but Emily Dickinson poetry and I've I mm-hmm. went through and actually marked my favorite poems in that book. So there there again that's kind of showing that 
that I do care about more than you don't just, just blow things up and think about the moon. <laughs> exactly. Although, yeah, yeah, there's that tendency for sure. All right. Next question I have is, how do people in Peru view foreigners? You know, I'm getting ready to come down there in a little bit, and you know, do they, um, do they kind of look up to foreigners or they look down at foreigners? Yeah, I'm just curious. Yeah, I would say uh, uh, foreigners is somewhat of a broad term, of course. You're probably more thinking about people from the States. And, yeah, people from the States definitely have their own category of in Peru or the way Peruvians view them. I would say Peruvians would really like to be Americans themselves as far as have the opportunity to live in the States, to work in the States, to have access to all the resources and so on that the States has to offer. But in a general sense, Peruvians think that Americans are stupid and spoiled. And probably there's this sense of, I don't know, you know how it is when when you wanted something as a child, uh, is a certain bike, and then your your friend got it or your cousin got it, and then you're like, oh, that bike's dumb, and mm. and he's dumb for wanting it, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think there's it's sort of that sense of pettiness um, mm. because of they're actually wanting to have the resources that that Americans want. So all Americans are rich, all Americans are spoiled, and they throw money away on things that they don't need and so they are easy pickings they know that americans are suckers for a sob story and so they can turn on the tears and uh and say you know i i made this thing with my with my hands and my child is sick and dying and an american will pay 10 times what it's worth and and they can do that every day in the tourist center Mm -hmm. so that's kind of in a nutshell and i don't think i said this but they they consider all americans very arrogant um, as if they all americans are looking down on the rest of the world and so there's this uh, sense of i'd like to be you but also you're 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 not that great either <laughs> yeah to me it sounds like there's a decent number of things they probably have about right <laughs> <laughs> maybe so yeah no, I yeah, I, I think that's probably that that's kind of about what I figured they would probably uh like how they would view foreigners, but I wasn't wasn't sure. I know that in some countries that there can be some antagonism and I wasn't necessarily worried about that, but I was just kind of curious how they view yeah, foreigners or I guess especially people from the state. So yeah, that would that answered my question. Yeah. Going my question for you still going along with the non-stereotypical part of you. Mm -hmm. One thing that I learned to enjoy about you or that surprised me and I have come to enjoy is your love of food. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, is there a food that you've made recently that you really enjoyed or maybe you haven't been in the kitchen very recently? If there was, (laughs) could you walk me through uh, your process, your recipe or whatever? Because I'm always looking for new fun recipes or great food. Yeah, so lately, the last month or so, we've been making a decent amount of ethnic food. Now, some of this is not 
not what you would consider. What does that even mean? <laughs> Ethnic. Yeah, exactly. So cultures, yeah, food from cultures other than our own okay, is what ethnic is. And so we've been making a good bit of fried rice, which uh, LaShonda has a really good recipe that I really enjoy. And also just last evening, we made General So's chicken, which I think is like if you would go to the area in China that General So came from, which I think I've actually heard it, that it's pronounced General Sao or to Sao or something mm-hmm. like that. Anyway, I'll, I'll yeah. say General So because that's how it's pronounced usually. Okay. And uh, apparently if you go there, they don't have a clue what this General So's chicken is. It's, <laughs> it's completely uh, made up. It's kind of a Asian American fusion cuisine. It's more, more than actually Chinese. Okay. But we did make that, but we used, we didn't make our own General So's sauce, although we have done that before. We just got some from the local Aldi and just dumped that on top of fried chicken. It was still very good, but it wasn't as good as the fully homemade version we've made. We've also been enjoying making Indian food, and there's some Indian restaurants locally that we occasionally go to for something special, and they had one called Chicken Pathia. Hmm. Normally, I really enjoy my chicken tikka masala, Mm -hmm. which is almost more British Indian than Indian, from what I understand. Okay. (laughs) But... Um, there again, it's kind of anglicized Indian food. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we made this chicken pathia and it has mango in it and tamarind concentrate and a bunch of different, it's supposed to have dried fenugreek leaves, which I've never had before. Oh, okay. And so we made that and it was really good. And then Lashonda has a really good recipe for garlic naan, mm. where you, you take this, this flat bread and you do it. We have a we have our griddle that we do pancakes on. You're supposed to do it on a on a dry griddle or pan. Mm-hmm. So we do that, mm-hmm. and then we baste it with garlic butter. And oh man, it is so good. <laughs> okay, I think I think I've had Indian food maybe once in my life, or that I can remember mm-hmm. off the top of my head. Anyway, so I do not have a palate for Indian food. Mm-hmm. So could you? The, the the chicken the last chicken that you were talking about could you uh, walk through that recipe just a little bit more in in detail like you said it was really good and then mm-hmm. it had this and that in it but I don't really have a good picture of like what makes it Indian or or what makes it different or what's your process for even for even making this thing what does it look like okay so how to make chicken pati I had to look up the recipe here quick okay so here's kind of a rough rough overview of how to make chicken patia. You put a little bit of oil in a skillet. You get chopped onion and put it in there and kind of saute it and get a little bit browned. Then you put garlic and ginger in there and continue kind of browning it. Then you put uh, your different spices and a little bit of sugar in the pan. And so the spices, it has quite a few different spices. So uh, red chili powder, different types of curry powder. Dried fenugreek leaves, mm-hmm. coriander, um, just a bunch of different Indian spices. Okay, okay. Then you you put in some uh, tomato puree and just kind of cook it down a little bit and then put in your chicken. Then you have the tamarind concentrate, which has kind of a, it's hard to describe. 
but it's almost kind of a citrusy type flavor that's a little bit tart. Okay. Um, then you put in some mango chutney, which is made out of mango. It's kind of a savory fruit paste or sauce. It like whenever I think of chutney, I think of like a jam, but it's not meant to be spread on spread on toast. It's for more savory dishes. Okay. And then you have dried uh, the dried fenugreek, and then you you also put some lemon juice, and then put chopped cilantro on top. And then you serve that hmm. on with rice on the side. So, yeah, it's huh. so the thing with with Indian food is it's really it uses a lot of spices. Mm-hmm. We we make the the chicken tikka masala fairly often, and one batch of this one recipe of chicken tikka masala uses I don't know how many tablespoons of spices <laughs> between between the marinade before you grill the chicken and then in the sauce itself. Just, it's just like one teaspoon after another of these different spices. You just keep adding, and so it's extremely aromatic. Okay. Um, I love I love smelling it as you're cooking it, and then it's also intensely flavored when you do eat it. Uh, which I've, I think that a lot of times, cultures that are closer to the equator tend to have much more, much spicier food. Mm-hmm. You know, they're using spicy peppers as well as just more spices in general. And I think some of that is maybe due to the climate. Like, I don't know about if if your meat has gone a little bit bad, you put a lot of spices in and it kind of covers <laughs> yeah. up some of that, you know, before refrigeration. Sure. I'm not sure if that's part of it or if maybe the spices are supposed to help keep you from getting sick from meat that's not 100% okay. I think I've heard different different theories on that, so it's not very scientific. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it's interesting that you know, like African cuisine, Indian cuisine, uh, Central American, South American, mm-hmm. a lot of that is very spicy. As as you go further north, it seems like the amount of spiciness goes down, and I'm not totally sure what the relationship is there. But yeah, hmm. that's fascinating. Yeah, we'll have to put the recipe in the show notes, and that's very different from anything that I've ever made. So. Might give it a try sometime. Mm-hmm. My third question is: What are the most common questions that Peruvians ask you and your family? Mm, probably the most common is: Why are you here? Mm. And when you could be in the states, like why would you live here and <laughs> and not still be there? Mm-hmm. Because uh, most people here would like to be there. Yeah, and so that's always a good opening question for talking about you know our hope, our whole purpose for being here. Uh, the next most common one probably is how are you dealing with the cold? <laughs> so living at 11,000 feet, the mornings and nights can be really cold and the houses are not heated. And so um, most Americans tend to be softies when it comes to that. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I was talking with my mom recently, a week or two ago, and she was saying that there was a cold snap came through uh, the states i guess it was like snowing in california and snowing in florida and that mm-hmm. sort of thing and so they had uh in in their place they had turned on their furnace their electric furnace said it would kick on at 70 degrees <laughs> and <laughs> and i was thinking wow if we if we had our if we had a furnace that it kicked on at 70 degrees like it would just be always on but anyway <laughs> the probably the third most common question is when is your time up which 
has often thrown me for a leap because I don't always catch what they're trying to ask. But the Peruvians have a very clear idea of what a missionary is. A missionary is someone who comes for three months to a maximum of 12 months and then leaves. Mm-hmm. And so that's their 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 whole mentality is like you're what are you here for what is your project are you building a someone a house are you digging a well are you whatever and how long will you go and so that also opens up another conversation about uh, our purpose of of planting a church and uh, long-term goals and so on and then probably the next most common question is are all these children yours and how can you afford to feed them (laughs) (laughs) yeah so this wasn't part of my question, but so what is the, the average family size there in Peru? Uh, one or two, I think. Really? It's probably, hmm. yeah, one or two is probably what the the modern family size is. It's not uncommon to see three. Okay. It is uncommon. It would, like, four and more is uncommon, and people will be very surprised and and wonder, you know, why you're having such a large family if you have four children. Yeah, um I'm, that kind of surprises me because a lot of times there's this there's this idea that developing countries tend to have a lot more children mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in certain certain places in Africa and well, I mean, you know, wherever there's a developing country, there tends to be more children and as the country becomes richer then the number of children just goes down, but yeah, you know, especially in your area in Peru, it's not very much not rich, mm-hmm. and but yet the the family sizes are small. Yeah, I think it's a couple of things um, that play into that. One is because of their poverty, they try to avoid having more mouths to feed. Mm-hmm. And in the eighties, as I understand it, the Peruvian government did a lot of uh, really radical things to deal with. Uh, family size and infant mortality rates and even uh, mother mortality rates. And then there was also The Shining Path, which you're probably a little bit familiar with, came through mm-hmm. during the 70s and 80s and tried to kill off a bunch of the Quechua people. And so it became a danger to be to be seen and to have children and so on and so forth. And the government, even in the 90s, the Peruvian government was um, doing forced forced sterilization of Quechua women, which is the indigenous people here. And so um, I think there, in the last number of decades, was a fear put into the people, mm-hmm. at least in this region in particular, that probably couldn't be put into words if you would ask someone on the street, but it has definitely affected the culture. And then combine that with um, everyone has uh, Facebook and TikTok in their hands now, and they want they want to go to school so they can be a YouTuber or go travel the world or whatever. And that's impossible to do if you're raising a family. Mm-hmm. And so it's very becoming very rapidly a uh, independent or a, a, a egocentric, self centric. Uh, view of marriage and family mm-hmm. life. Yeah, this is getting even more far afield. But I recently, <laughs> I recently saw that they're encouraging families to have children in Japan because Japan has probably mm-hmm. one of the lowest birth rates in the world, mm-hmm. and they have a very old population with very few people supporting 
the older people and so it's it's kind of interesting that it just in the just in the last 50 to 60 years it's went from very much trying to encourage people not to have as many children and now they're struggling to get people to to force people to start having children um and there's yeah. there there's complicated reasons uh, that people choose not to have children it's not because everybody is selfish a lot of times there's like economic reasons, the cost of living is so high. And like, for instance, they said that the women in Japan, they're, they're, there's this cultural pressure to take care of, you know, her older parents while also being a good wife and, and taking care of things at home. And then also the cost of living tends to be higher. So it's difficult to support a family on just one income. So she has to work. Well, it's going to be difficult to work and take care of your older parents and raise children at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they just decide not to have children. And so, yeah, it's a complicated issue, but yeah, it's fascinating that we've turned around that much. I just, I saw just in the last uh, day or so, I was watching a video about agricultural technology, some of this new AI mm-hmm. related and, and machine learning that they're using that in agriculture to have targeted killing of weeds and targeted fertilizing these machines they pull behind tractors and they were talking about the need for growing more food and that i think they're saying in 2050 there's going to be 10 billion people and i think just in the last couple months or so we went from 7 billion to 8 billion yeah right uh we finally crossed the 8 billion people so yeah it's Kind of why, are, why are they why are they encouraging them to have more babies? <laughs> yeah, I read uh, just this week, but I can't remember which country it was. I want to say uh, South Korea, but that feels wrong. Is uh, just announced this week, I believe, that they're paying couples so much per year for for a number of years up till the the child is eighteen or something, in order to encourage couples to to have babies. So hmm. yeah, there are a number of different countries that are struggling with this. I was quickly trying to to find where I had read that in uh, a newsletter recently, but I couldn't pull it up. So we'll have to fact check that. But yeah, <laughs> okay. It's not my fault. <laughs> I'm doing my part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's see. I need to have a last question for you. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll, I'll go with this one, James. How do you cope with stress or pressure when you're working under deadlines or expectations and what are some of the ways that you then relax or unwind? So I know a little bit about your work. You have a lot on your plate and you're balancing, juggling a lot of balls, as they say. Mm-hmm. So how do you handle it? Uh, what stress or pressure? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What are these words of which you speak? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. I don't tend to get very stressed out for the most part. I was talking with with a coworker about this one time, and she was talking about how you know I need to be careful not to get stressed out. And it's like, well, I'm not really that stressed, mm-hmm. I would say. But I think sometimes it can it can kind of creep up on me a little bit. Yeah, it's. I'm trying to think here. So I think one thing that really helps me cope with stress or pressure is I, I I've gotten into the habit the last number of years of doing. Uh, doing a weekly review, mm-hmm. and I found that very helpful. So just to kind of say what a weekly review is, you you kind of look over the past week, 
and I don't always do this, but sometimes you write down like what are the three to five things that you did that you're really proud of or you know what are the big accomplishments that you did the, the last week mm-hmm. and and that's that's helpful because a lot of times those bigger accomplishments kind of get drowned out by all the things you didn't get done or the things you did poorly yeah, okay so that's that's helpful it helps you not feel like oh I've got all these things I didn't get done it's like oh you know I got the these things done these are big things mm-hmm. and it, it kind of helps you not feel quite so anxious. Sure. And then also, I find it's very helpful to think ahead, you know, think about what I did the past week, what I got done, and if I got something done, what are the next steps, mm-hmm. or what's coming up. So I look at the meetings and different things that I have coming up the, the coming week or weeks, and think, what do I need to do to get ready for that? Or does that remind me of something else that I need to do? And so I'll just write down a list of these are the things that I need to do the next week or so. Mm-hmm. And then I'll kind of schedule those out. So I find the weekly review being very helpful to keep to keep things from, from building up to the point that they do become really stressful. And also, and I'm still in the process of building this, but having a having a system that you trust that you can put information into and you know that it's there if you need to go back later. So like you've kind of alluded to, I have a good bit of responsibility at work and I'm getting more responsibility going through this year. And as I get more responsibility, there's more projects that I am responsible for, not necessarily to do the work, but to make sure that it's getting done and that I'm looking ahead for any possible issues that might crop up mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and scheduling and you know, scheduling that with other projects, balancing workload for different people and, so there's there's different places you know I have a note taking system and I could spend a good bit of time talking about that but I'm not going to <laughs> because everybody would fall asleep <laughs> maybe even somebody that's driving exactly. down the road would probably fall asleep <laughs> yeah it would just be us two left <laughs> yeah exactly so making sure that I have a place to put all those notes and capturing as many as many thoughts as many ideas that come to my mind having a place to capture those things and then put them for later so, yeah, that's um, it, very broad strokes. That's a little bit of what I do. So it doesn't really say how I cope with stress or pressure. It's kind of what I do to keep it from building up. Mm-hmm. But as far as ways that I relax or unwind, I find that getting up early in the morning and having quiet time where I'm sipping a cup of coffee, reading the Bible, spending time in prayer. If I have, I've been trying to do more writing lately, so spend some time writing. That kind of helps me, in a sense, unwind. It's not the end of the day. It's the beginning of the day. But it it kind of helps me unwind and have that quiet time. Mm-hmm. So I can be, this sounds buzzwordy, but I can be more centered mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and relaxed throughout the rest of the day. So I find that morning time very important. So instead of putting out fires, you're more trying to maintain or avoid the stress ever, ever building up to a place that you feel stressed or overwhelmed that yeah. makes sense mm-hmm. well this is fun again uh, we have a lot more questions on on our our list in front of us that we didn't hit but i think we're gonna wrap it up for this time we're looking forward to to a big episode again uh probably will be the next time that we record i'm gonna put it into the recording that way we <laughs> are going to tie ourselves down <laughs> because over the last uh, how long has it been 
over a year anyway, we've been uh, kicking this topic down the road. It uh, depends uh, heavily on James, but it comes from one of our patrons. So we're excited about that. I'm excited about it. And speaking of the patrons, we we did recently add on a couple over the last few months to our patrons, and we're grateful for your support. Periodically, James and I have this conversation of, are we still doing this? <laughs> are we still, is the podcast still alive? Are we going to keep going? And uh, it almost always comes back to, to our patrons making it possible and giving us that extra oomph to keep going. Mm-hmm. I feel pretty confident that if we didn't have the patrons that it would the podcast would have died maybe a, a bit ago. <laughs> yeah, probably. So if you want to see us carrying on, you could consider supporting us through uh, Patreon. We use that money mostly to help cover our our editor his costs, which makes it so that we have time to put into studying, preparation, whatever, for these sorts of conversations. Yeah, one thing I want to add, though, is, um, yeah, we encourage you to to give us a little bit for our extra podcast, for what it's worth. And I think we have, what, 30-couple episodes up at at this point? Mm Mm-hmm. And and some of those are just as long as these uh, (laughs) Looking Over Life episodes. It's not like you'll be paying for uh for a two minute blurb i mean that some of them are sure <laughs> 30 30 minutes long to an hour i think we maybe even have one or two that's over an hour long right but then uh, uh but i would say the most helpful thing you can do is simply to share the podcast with friend or family just yeah i agree yeah just take a little bit of time and say hey there's this podcast that i enjoy listening to sometimes occasionally they say things that are halfway smart and enjoyable (laughs) (laughs) and just share it with somebody else. Um, If you don't feel like you want to pay anything, just share it with somebody else. We appreciate it. 